Blood Brothers Podcast, a Five Pillars Production. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi barakatuh, my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there. Welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Didi Hussein. Before I introduce today's very special guest, I'd remind you all to subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. And if you are an avid podcast listener, then please remember that you can find this show on all the major audio platforms. Today's guest is someone who's very dear to me, very dear to Five Pillars in the capacity of an advisor someone whose uh, religious counsel we take very seriously. He is someone who I'm very honoured to regard as an, an elder, um, a, a, a helper and an advisor in many of my religious affairs, as well as guiding five pillars amongst his other contemporaries in the work that we do. And that is none other than my dear Sheikh and friend and brother Sheikh Tokir Ishaq, uh, who is the former CEO of Hijaz College in Non-Eaton. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. How are you? I'm very well. How are you, Sheikh? Alhamdulillah. It's my honor and my privilege to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. No, no, no. Jazakallah khair for driving down to London, which I believe was originally your city, right? Used to, I was raised in South London, hence my accent. Okay. And I've been everywhere in London for various reasons education, Islamic work, social activities. So, yeah, alhamdulillah. It's, uh, it's interesting to be back. And but although I'm, I'm glad I've left some years ago now, you know I very we've had mashayikh and ulama on this podcast before of various persuasions and backgrounds, and never has the podcast been about exclusively their life. So I'm doing this the first time with you. I want this podcast to be somewhat about your life and some of the very interesting, or at least I find them interesting. Um, Milestones, changes, positions, transitions, events And I also want to know the person who I deem to be an advisor to our work As well as someone who I see At least you know whenever I have a problem with Hanafi fiqh I'm on the blower to you, always And um, so I want people to know who Sheikh Tokir is I want to, And I think people will benefit from knowing uh, who you are, inshallah Can we start off with London? Is this Was this the... Was this a city? Is this your birth city? I was born in Lahore in Pakistan, yeah. but I was raised in London. I came here when I was one. So all my education and almost all of my Islamic knowledge uh, was, sort of was based in London. And a lot of my Islamic work was in London. Uh, I mean, I did my degree in London as well. What did uh, you do the degree in? My degree was in civil engineering and uh, it's a BSc and an MSc in civil engineering. I actually went to Imperial College in South Kensington. And to be honest, the reason I chose them, they had a very good Islamic society and I really benefited there. Lovely brothers from all over the world. There was no fighting or conflict, you know, everyone got on. And that actually inspired me a lot because uh, we were all there to educate ourselves and to teach each, teach each other about Islam. And there's a lot of, there's a lo- lovely brotherhood there. So that, that actually... Um, Coloured a lot of my thinking about uh, people from all over the world, Muslims from all over the world, mashallah. Alhamdulillah. And if I may ask about uh, your father, is is he alive? Yeah, my father, Muhammad Ishaq, Sah, bless him, is in his mid uh, mid to late eighties now. Subhanallah. Allah bless him. I've, I mean, I, again, I got the privilege of looking after him a little bit because he's moved up to where I am now in the Midlands. Okay. I've been trying to get him there for ages. And Alhamdulillah, both my parents moved up. I, I did all the arrangements I could. Built, built, built them an extension as well, so they're happy and they're, they're, they're actually settled down. Whenever I can, because as a good Muslim should, I cook for them, I get cleaners for them, whatever I can do. But Alhamdulillah, they're very independent and they don't want, want to burden you, you know, your, their, their children. But um, I want to show my children, this is how you look after your parents, this is what Islam is all about. The practical Islam is very important. You can read what you like in books, but the real living Islam is what teaches somebody. We copy what we see and we learn from what we see. And this is what the Sunnah is all about. So that, that that's what I'm trying to do. And may Allah accept from me. Amin, Amin. Um, what would, how religious, I mean, I'm asking again out of ignorance, how religious was your dear father in terms of an upbringing? 
Both, both my parents were, were they loved religion. They you know five times prayer, Juma mosques. My father's even now a trustee of at least three mosques in London, which he, helped, which he helped to found. Got to remember at that time there was we were being educated in somebody's front room. There was a people a person who couldn't really teach teaching you alif bet there and stuff. Mm. You know that's how it started. Then I, I was with him when we bought one mosque after another. The community flourished, mashallah. And I was with him when, uh, you know, um, I, I asked him, can I come to meetings and stuff just to learn what was going on. I was a little kid sitting there. Um, I was just curious. And that, 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 alhamdulillah, that involvement taught me a lot as well. You know, how to fight in committees and how not to fight in committees and stuff like that. You know, bl- blood brothers is probably a good, good term to use when you, when, you, when you join a committee meeting. But they were, they were all sincere. And they're all saying the same thing. And I'm just thinking, listening, I say, you're saying the same thing as him. Why are you shouting at each other? You know? right. But alhamdulillah, they got all the work done, bless them. And, and they, they came to this country with, with, with nothing, as people say. And they established a lot of good mosques. And may Allah accept from them, inshallah. Allah bless them for that. Alhamdulillah, I just want to touch upon a point which, which, I, which is really deep for me. You know, the first wave of South Asian migrants that came, our fathers, our forefathers, um, they arrived in the 60s My dad arrived in 66 With his uncle uh, Pretending to be his son um, That's how he came And you know And there were many of such stories like this From India, Pakistan, Bangladesh And they were the first wave of uh, You know, generation That built the masajid That, you know Established the Hajj and Umrah operators They were the ones that got the motions rolling For the Muslim cemeteries The very foundations And the, the, the institution Which we take for granted right now And how important do you think it is to appreciate that? Because I know there's this really kind of like very cynical uh, thing about all oh, the f- older generation, they were just about this and that. and But no, I think the very fact that we enjoy the many facilities that they established 40 years ago, 30 years ago, is we are where we are and we're able to do that from a point of privilege and luxury that our forefathers did that with their blood, sweat and tears. We, we, we've got to understand how difficult it was then. Halal food is very difficult to obtain. Eid namaz is very difficult. I remember we were going to working for Eid. That was the only big mosque with a big tent. But you've got to remember also, they came with very little knowledge. Uh, they weren't able to answer questions that people put to them. They weren't able to push the dawah and push Islam forward because they weren't uh, equipped to do that. And, you know, they came as if essentially as servants to the, the country. Mm-hmm. So with that mindset, what, what can you do? So the fact that they've built the mosques and they've managed to persuade the councillors and the MPs, whatever little they could do, I think that's a great thing we should do and we should appreciate it. Now, uh, everyone's, everyone, nobody's perfect. Even now, mosque, mosques run by youngsters, they're not, they're not perfect. We are always firefighting, we are always on the back foot, you know, when um, uh, we were under the spotlight, then suddenly everybody went into operation and, and did charity work. Why weren't we doing that 20, 30 years ago? Uh, I remember one committee meeting I went to, and I said, look, uh, mashallah, this mosque has got a good income. That's, when, that's the day when I used to help run the mosque, and I went into the committee and stuff. I said, we need five imams. And they said, why do you want five imams? I said, listen, I want one imam to go to all the schools. I want one imam to go to the prisons. I want one imam to go to the hospitals. I want one imam to go door to door. I want another imam to sit on the, on the computer's internet which is coming out and, and speak to people over the internet. That's not happening now. That must have been a really radical idea then. I, I was practically thrown out of the committee. <laughs> I, 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 the, the accusation made was, uh, um, uh, forgive me, you want to hire your friend. Okay. That was the accusation. I oh, said, dear. no, I'll hire your friends. But yeah. we're sitting on a quarter of a million pound in the bank. I mean, let's start doing dawa work. We, mm. I, I want an old people's place here. I want a centre for uh, where families can come. I want this. And we got the space. We just want the prayer. We don't want anything so else. What, so, so, so what was that money, do you think, was... I'm not going to use the term hoarded because I don't think it's an appropriate term. But what do you think that money was being saved for? An extension? Or? No, no, no. They they were completely bankrupt of ideas oh of, of how to do work in this in this country. Completely mm. bankrupt. Mm. And even now, many of us are still are. Yeah. Um, do, do you know what? If we follow the sunnah, the biggest sunnah, in my opinion, is is charity work. If you look around at all the prophets, they never left a homeless person, a sick yeah. person. Alayhi wasalam. Yeah. yeah. They helped, no matter what the personal cost. 
we walk past a homeless person as if he's dirt and how how dare he sit here you know mm. i wanted to ho- op- open up a little shelter for the homeless mm. they would have become muslims isn't it no, if, we, if we did if we were had proper iman and followed the sunnah properly half the country we, we'd be looking after the, all the homeless people in the women's shelters and, and the animals as well we'd be doing that we're not we're, we're just we're just in our little cocoons we have to have somewhere to pray and we have to educate our children both of those are essential but that's just part of Islam absolutely mm. um, you said that uh, imperial uh, was where you you really liked the Islamic society you met some lovely brothers there from all around the world um, I only recently found out through um Omar Suleiman, uh, for who's um, Islamic Council of Europe, and he said that you know Sheikh Tukiz, he's a South Londoner, and he was also part of YM, uh, was in his youth. So before we get to that, what age were you when you were involved in wife? And what wife was youth Muslim, right? Young Muslims, Young Muslims. and that was uh, UK Islamic Mission UKIM. So one could say that it's what of a Jamaati background. Yeah, UK yeah. Islamic Mission, Jamaat Islam. Yeah, Jamaat Islam, yeah. So, how old were you during that period? Was that university time as well? Or pre-university, post-university? Uh, that was, uh, do you know what, I've got to think back now. That that was around the time of uh, university, yes. Okay. Were there, other, were there other brothers uh, from university that were YM or UKIM? Not, not at Imperial. Okay. Uh, there, there was his Tari was just coming into Imperial. Okay. And but there, you know, everyone looked, you know, got on with each other. But the, what I found about YM was very sincere. Uh, it's like it's called the Islamic Movement, and you know they wanted to train themselves, train each other, do dawah, do you know camps for the youngsters, get everybody into the sort of mindset of Islam, mm-hmm. especially the the sisters as well, which who didn't have anything. So that really, uh, you know, um, uh, it connected with me, and the brothers are very very hardworking, mashallah. So that that actually again, I was very privileged to have met them they were very lovely people and i'm still in touch with some of them now mashallah although we've sort of diverged a little bit how long were you part of uh this movement it's it was a good four or five years and and you know, i i became in a in a very senior position treasurer and etc and stuff and general secretary and all that so alhamdulillah although the, the the positions didn't mean that much it's everybody had to work mashallah. and was it during this period where you were boxing people up with taekwondo and tung sudu what was it that you used to do yeah it's taekwondo taekwondo yeah, I was yeah doing that at the same time at the same time yeah, yeah. yeah. so anyone that weren't really getting into line are bop bop yeah yeah well that's one interpretation of self-defense <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> if that's the interpretation you want but uh, yeah um, uh, how long did you do that for the taekwondo? I'm st- I'm still doing it, although it's it's, it's 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 calmed down quite a lot. Are know. the stretches still very important for those high leg Stretch kicks? Stretch is absolutely essential. Okay, absolutely essential. And even now, I can outstretch my children, mashallah, when we when I sort of train with them a little bit. So, so, so you must have a deadly roundhouse and axe handle, right? Um, it it, w- it was deadly at one point, and now it's just a little tap okay. <laughs> around those kicks. Did you ever have to ever use it? You're using martial arts all the time. Martial arts is a way of life and the philosophy. So using it all the time, yeah, and and you know that okay. because of your, your background. Yeah. So you're you're always trying to get out of trouble, not get into trouble. But I'm saying, when you ever were in trouble, did you ever have to use it? <laughs> okay, no. Let's not, not go into okay, that. <laughs> okay, so. You know, YM, young Muslims, you know, just before the camera started filming, I confused it for YMO, which is the kind of like Bengali, Bangladeshi, Jamaati version of it at the time as well. I've got many friends uh, and, and, and cousins and, and elders who were also part of that. Um, when was the transition? When did you get married? Uh, I got married in 1990. And how old were you? I was 26. Yeah. Were you done with YM by then? No, I was still in YM. So this is very interesting because YM, you got, if you're saying that you were still involved as you got married, we know that your father-in-law, may Allah have mercy on him, was a very notable and you know a, a revered figure. yeah. And that was Mawlana Abdul Wahab Siddiqui, rahimahullah. I mean, now he was... Obviously known for a his 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 persuasion was not that of YM or am I am I correct in saying that? Uh, 
Yeah, he was uh, our listener in the world, Jamal. You can call you can call us the, from the Brailvi community, although we don't use that. Term. I don't know, but, but, but Naqshbandi. Yeah, Naqshbandi. Naqshbandi, right? And that's a no, that's a normative Sunni tariq. Uh, yeah. it, it, you know, for various civ- Islamic civilization, it was very much a normative. How did that happen? How did someone who had YM less? You, I, mean, I don't like using these terms. Jamaati Ikhwani mindset kind of training come and merge with. Uh, the son-in-law of a very prominent figure uh, in the the tariqa. Yeah, I mean, Hazrat Sahib, I call him Rahmatullah mm. Ali. Um, I mean, we were looking, I was looking for a wife and he was looking for a um, husband for his daughter. And we had some common people that we knew, so we were introduced. And uh, he's he's such a figure, he got on with everybody and he was very much a person for unity you know, even though people with him were sort of very questioning that. So when certain events happened, he made sure everybody was united. He even held conferences when the Iran-Iraq war was happening. He tried to get them, you know, speaking to each other to stop the war. So he was very much a very much a, a sort of activist for the peace of the Ummah. So he was he's politically, very politically active for that time. This is, we're talking pre-9-11, yeah. where we're being politically active outside of Bosnia... Yeah. Wasn't really a thing. Yeah, mashallah. Mashallah, he was because he loved the ummah, he loved the Muslims, and uh, you know, you, you can't hate anybody. If if someone says La ilaha illallah, mm. Muhammadur Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, whatever their their, their 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 sort of practices that don't match you, whatever they they've got a they've got a believing heart. Mm. And as far as the non-Muslims are concerned, what's our duty? Not to ignore them, our duty is to encourage them to look at Islam and uh, eventually have some sort of love and respect for Islam. That's what we're here for and that's what he used to do. So I don't think he looked at too much at my sort of uh, which group I was in. What he looked at, I suppose, was has he got a good heart? Is he sincere to follow the truth? And uh, so I started asking him questions and uh, he was... The only person, and I, I asked many ulama from many different maslaks, he was the only person who could answer them from Quran and Sunnah. Okay. And would, that, would it be fair to then say that was when we kind of saw a transition in you from perhaps, I wouldn't say moving away or a departure, but no more YM and more towards the Naqshbandi Tariq? Yeah, look, uh, at, at all stages of our life, we have to realise Islam is not just external, it's internal. Mm-hmm. You know, Sharia is external and what's internal is, is as important. Mm-hmm. So he was a great Sufi and he was a great master at what we call the Sawwuf. Mm-hmm. So he introduced me and encouraged me and explained to me. Now, organisations are very clinical and Sharia can be very clinical, here's your five times prayer, here's your fasting, here's your hajj. But to, to for Islam to touch your heart, you're not going to get that from, you know, putting your head on the floor, to be honest. You, you might get a little bit, but for Islam to touch your heart, and for your heart to be inspired and your heart to be cleansed, there are exercises you have to do. And that's what makes you a complete Muslim, a proper believer. The companions, for example, all the prophets, for example, alayhi wasalam, how much emphasis did they do on private personal worship at night time? Striving, struggle, struggling, constant, sacrificing, constant. constant. And their personal position was, was put at zero, right? Because their love and connection with Allah was so, so strong. And the prayer is just, just part of their it's necessary worship, right? Which made it even stronger. But you. you Prayer is not enough, it's necessary, it's not sufficient Because you've got to look at the inside The the issues about the heart And what the Quran says about the heart And what the Hadith say about the heart And the purification of the soul That is uh, 50% of your of your Islam So that can't that hasn't been introduced into organisations That comes one to one As Abu Huraira said He said the Prophet taught me two types of knowledges This is Bukhari Sharif Hadith in um, Kitabul Ilm. Mm-hmm. He goes, one one knowledge I've told you, the other I haven't. Because that was the one to one he had with mm-hmm. the Prophet Sallallahu and he gave equal weight to both. So that, if you like, secret knowledge or the spiritual knowledge or the spirituality, that knowledge is is 
has to come from someone who's got the authority. Would you say, do you mind me asking what kind of questions you asked uh, your dear father-in-law? Yeah, we, we had a lot of uh, people, Salafi people attacking us mm. and we didn't have the answers. So a lot of the questions were in Bidah and, and Shirk and, 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 and stuff like this. And also um, questions on spirituality, uh, questions which I couldn't find in answers, which I couldn't find in other books and but, stuff. But did you did, did weren't these discussions happening uh, at YM with your with your elders? The, the and your scholars brothers? weren't able to answer it. And trust me, I'm not going to mention the scholars. I'm mm. a passed away. Uh, they weren't able to answer the questions. Okay. But he, what, what happened was, I had about fifteen twenty questions. I went through them, and each one he listened to, and I thought he'd, he'd answer each one. But after the first one, I looked up and he looked back. He goes, what's the second question? I said, okay. So I went down, 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 okay. on the list. And he goes, okay. I said, we haven't written anything down. He goes, yeah, I, I know the questions. I thought, crikey. He's, he's just put it into his head. This is after you've married? After I'm married. Yeah. Okay. Um, I had these questions from before marriage, but I, I, I was asking all these scholars I, I was meeting. Mm -hmm. One of them I followed around the country to grab him and ask him. And he, he didn't want, he couldn't answer them. And I was very... I thought there must be answers somewhere. So anyway, um, as he said, come back next week. I thought, you know, I've heard that before, I'll come back next week. But I said, fine, I'll come back next week. Came back next week, there's a pile of books with yellow stickers sticking out. He goes, right. He goes, your first question on this. He goes, here's Quran, here's the answer. As if, as if someone had asked Allah the question and Allah answered it. Here's another answer. As if someone asked the Prophet, and he answered it. He's showing me in Bukhari. He goes, "This is Bukhari." I said, "I've never. I've, I've read the whole of Bukhari twice. I've never seen this." He goes, "Well, that's not my fault. <laughs> that's not my fault. I'm showing you now, because you, you, you just skip over it sometimes." So he showed me there's the answer, and after about five, six answers, I thought, "Subhanallah, this person, the depth of his knowledge, the breadth of his knowledge." You know when someone's speaking the truth, and someone has a huge reservoir of knowledge that he he can tap into. Mm -hmm. Even the Ahlul Gahf, he, he, he described them to me. I said, I haven't read them about their descriptions anywhere. And Allah bless him, he goes, yeah, I've seen them in my dreams, he said. SubhanAllah. And I was absolutely shocked. I thought, this person is connected, you know. And, and you can tell when you meet someone. The Prophet said, sallam, that there's three qualities of a person that you should follow one quality is this when he speaks he teaches you your deen when you see his actions you remember the akhirah and when you look at him you remember allah subhanahu yes absolutely and he had all these three qualities in volumes in volumes then i made sure every speech he went to if i could i'll take him there and bring him back for dajjur right? yeah not just that, I could ask him questions. I had him all to myself, ask him questions. Oh, from a selfish point of view. Yeah, yeah, completely selfish. I made sure I went with him for Umrah when he went for his last Umrah. And he even gave me a tafsir in front of the Kaaba and he told me stuff, you know, about what's happening and what's going on in the history. And, and that I'll never forget. That person who's connected, who gets his inspiration from the awliya ikram and from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, you've got to find them, grab them and learn from them. But the, the, the most important thing I learned, not just knowledge, was that his practice of Islam, living Islam and loving Islam as a family man, as a, a figurehead, as a leader of people, as an imam, as a follower. Uh, I remember we were producing a magazine and he goes to me, I'm going to make sure I write for you for this magazine. I'll be your best writer. I would look at that humility. I, I thought, wow, I've never seen of such humility. And he did. And he kept his word and he wrote article after article. It's absolutely uh, uh, wonderful to see. And the love he had in his hearts for people. I remember uh, two people were having a conversation and they were saying, Hazasab loves me more than he loves you. And the other go, no, no, he loves me more than he loves you. And they were having an argument. Then I said, can I inter, inter, interrupt here? And looked at me, what, what have you got to say? I said, he loves me more than both of you. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, this is a sign of uh, someone very close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One of the, another revered and very respected figure who spoke very highly and thought very highly of your dear father-in-law, may Allah have mercy on him, was Dr. Kaleem Sadiq, rahimahullah. 
uh, a man who had ideas and visions perhaps too early at the time people weren't ready for it um in terms of like he was a visionary and he thought very highly uh, of your dear father-in-law um as someone who was also a visionary right and you said something about Mawlana um, Sahibullah that he had a love for the Muslims and for people who had La ilaha illallah and he'd also worked towards unity. How old were you when the Salman Rushdie affair happened with the satanic verses? I was in my mid 20s, mid to late 20s. Yeah. Uh, married by then? Yeah. Your father in law played a key role in mobilizing the Muslims at that time. It was a few people, but yeah, he played a key role and yeah. I was there, uh, not for everything. His sons were there more than I was, but because mm. uh, I was in London. But I was there for a couple of meetings, and we had a few demonstrations. We wrote a few articles. But Kalim Siddiqui, bless him, what he did, he you see, this is what the Muslim Ummah lacked: a courageous person to speak out mm -hmm. and to take on. And he took on every journalist. He goes, yeah, come on, I'll take you on, and he answered them really well. And they didn't like his answers. Of course not. Right? But, and then he started the Muslim parliament, which they absolutely were gobsmacked and shocked yeah. and horrified. Mm. And he, I think he did that just for that reason. <laughs> and Hazrat Sarahmatullah goes, Yeah, I'll join because you want unity and you, you want to uh, work for the Ummah. So he, he joined that. I was told, I, mean, I don't know how true it is, I heard that Dr. Kaleem Sadiq wanted Mulana uh, Sahib to be some of a grand mufti of the UK. Or, or something of that kind of position I, I think he already was for the Sunnis to be honest Okay, yeah. mashallah um, Salman Rushdie, uh, Satanic Verses This happened at a time pre-9-11 uh, Pre-war on terror Where perhaps the religious identity of Muslims in the UK Wasn't something that necessarily stood out It was more to do with a racial identity But this was the first time in the UK where Muslims had been triggered um, you know, quite were very angry about what was happening. Um, what are your recollections of that period in terms of the Muslim response to uh, Rushdie's uh, book? I think the Muslim response was wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, the book was is vicious. This is 1998, I think it yeah. was published. Yeah, and uh, 19 sorry, 1988. Mm -hmm. And 1989 is, is when all the demonstrations happened and stuff. And if you read the stuff in there, it's absolutely vile. It's, it's absolutely disgusting. He, he goes after every senior companion, his, the Prophet's wives. So all of a sudden he goes after the Prophet's companions. And when I say go after them, he actually completely uses vulgar language. I'm not even going to mention that, but it's absolutely disgusting. Mm -hmm. Um... And he knew what he was doing, and you know I think people also put him up to it as well because he you know he's he's meant to be a Muslim so he knows all the figures all the names all the all the stuff and and what he wrote if you if you read the extract your blood just boils there's no need to write this rubbish so quite rightly Muslims uh, reacted very very uh, um, uh, unitedly and vociferously and uh, would you say the, the, would you say the response was appropriate and proportionate. In oh, e easily, easily. But I, I think we could have could have done a lot more. It was a worldwide worldwide response as well, starting in the UK, mm -hmm. and we're still angry about it. And what made us more angry was the the, the establishment didn't realise how hurt we were. I remember Thatcher was in charge, and Thatcher eventually, after some Muslims approached her, do you realise how how bad this is? We absolutely, we you know, we're absolutely livid about this. Islam was just, you know, you naughty little Muslim, you stay where you are and just leave mm. us alone, right? Mm. And that's essentially the mentality now. So she, she eventually came to the to the cameras and said, yes, I, I accept. You know, she had this very deep voice. Of course she did. Yes, I, I accept. Lion lady. Muslims are very hurt by this, extremely hurt by this. I completely understand. That calmed a lot of, lot of uh, people down, actually. That wasn't but a bad impersonation, if that was what was intended. She was, she was, she was essentially trained to, to have this voice. But anyway, that's oh. a different story. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and alhamdulillah, there's great unity because it's attacking every Muslim. Whatever, whatever group you say you belong to, you say, la ilaha illallah, you love the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, 
I'm sorry, that's a direct, direct attack. And then the world was galvanized. And the, the novel's still there. And what was interesting was Spy, Spy Catcher was out at the same time. Like, is it Martin Wright? Mm-hmm. He, he died a millionaire thanks to the publicity. But one of my uh, uh, colleagues, he, he went to W.H. Smith, he put Rushdie, he put Satanic Verses and Spy Catcher next to each other. And he was asked to leave the store. <laughs> and he said, uh, he goes, I'm just expressing my freedom. And they said, we don't want to hear your freedom. And mm. I thought, yeah, that, that, that shows me what the, the non-Muslims think about Islam. So I realised then, we haven't done anything uh, in terms of dawah. We've completely failed. Well, in terms of changing perceptions. Yeah. We were just quietly in our little closet, right, uh, worshipping Allah quietly and, and didn't want, we were afraid to show them our Islam. And Iman is courage. And the only thing the non-Muslims saw about our Islam are these Muslims violently protesting. And they had no idea what the background was. So we're still on the back foot there. We're still not doing proper dawah. You said, uh, just, just a couple of minutes ago, you said um, what was more concerning was the disregard uh, that the government, or, or let's say for a better term, how oblivious they appeared to be about the hurt and offence that was caused to the Muslims from the satanic verses. Let's fast forward nearly 30 years now, or 25 years, a quarter of a century. The, still, the same thing still happened with Charlie Hebdo and, and the caricatures of the Prophet. Yeah. They, they're still, there still seems to be a, a nonchalant approach to Muslims uh, and, and the sanctity of Rasulullah in, in the centrality of our deen and our life. Yeah, because so, they absolutely hate political Islam, they fear political Islam. And the reason they fear it because they're, I'm sorry to say, they're just corrupt people, corrupt internally and corrupt externally. Mm. And, and that's why they fear Islam, because Islam can't be bought. Mm-hmm. Some scholars might have been bought, but Islam essentially can't be bought like other religions have been bought. And that scares them, because if you do something wrong and someone makes you accountable, that, that actually scares you, because your conscience is still there a little bit, and you think, yeah, I've done something wrong. And let's face it, uh, we can see what's being done done wrong at the highest levels of government. Of course. Right? But nobody really cares anymore in government. You're expected to do that. But Muslims, we care. We have to answer before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why we care about right and wrong. You know, it's very interesting to hear you say da'wah because this is a term, I'm sorry to say this, Sheikh, it's not a term that's normally associated or commonly associated with people of the soul wolf. I'm going to be honest with you. Because the Taoist scene has been dominated by particular persuasions or particular movements. But it's interesting that you have consistently said this for the last half hour, 40 minutes that we've been speaking about. Is that something from the influence of YM or is that something as, as a Muslim, a Muslim has to give Dawa? It's it's both and influence of Hazrat Ramatullah. He... He used to give speeches in churches. He was very close to certain bishops and certain, you know, leading figures in in the Christian church. And he, uh, we we went to schools and stuff to give speeches. And and whenever we were invited, we for uh, the the um, you know the cross uh, the the uh, cross religious organisations where you have interfaith and okay. stuff. So I was a little bit active there. Although to be honest, I once gave a speech at a church, and. Um, I didn't expect the reaction. We're talking about prayer, and there were a couple of uh, ladies. And you know, in the Muslim uh, community, people say Subhanallah, Allah Akbar. Yeah. These are Christians. So when I, I made a couple of points about prayer, and they really appreciated it, and they said Alleluia, and oh. I was taken aback. I said, what, what, What's going on? Oh, so that, that was the equivalent. That was the equivalent. Okay. Alleluia, praise the Lord, you okay. know, and stuff. And and their priest was right next to me. Mm. And I could see he was very uncomfortable and he never invited me back for some reason oh dear. after that. So that, that was my interfaith experience. I thought, you know what, uh, I don't know what they want from me. Uh, she actually said, she actually stood up and said, I want to learn the Muslim, Muslim prayer. Well, there you go. Then we and know what, what the problem I was. I want to learn the Muslim prayer. I want to pray like the Muslim. I thought, oh my God. I said, yeah. I said, I, I can't. I, I said, I'm bringing some sisters who can teach you. And that's why I was never, and you were never, invited. never invited, which is fine. Yeah. Is, is there a type of interfaith? I mean, we are going to get to intrafaith towards the end of the podcast. But is there a type of interfaith that is clearly problematic? Let me give you an example. Pulse 9-11, Pulse 7-7, War on Terror interfaith is not so much about the Muslims engaging with Ahl al-Kitab 
and finding a common truth between us in the worship of Allah alone and associating no partners with Him. That's not the interfaith we're really doing. A lot of the interfaiths to do with finding certain commonalities. Sadly, there have been instances where there's been, whether this was intended or not, certain perennialist uh, ideas that have come out that, you know, all rivers, all streams lead to the same river and not that kind of stuff. Or, you know, find, you know, celebrating, acknowledging each other's religious festivals and stuff. Is there a type of interfaith that is problematic? And is there a type of interfaith that should be encouraged? Uh, look, dawah is for everybody. So if dawah can be, uh, the mechanism can be by interfaith meetings, that's fine. I, I was sat with uh, Christopher Lambert, I think. He's an ex-canon uh, bishop and I had a very nice chat with him. And my whole discussion was about Islam. And uh, and so some people have actually said, you're practically a Muslim, why don't you convert? Because of what you're saying. And then they sort of go quiet. So I, I don't understand that. That's my interfaith. Uh, interfaith is with any faith or even the people who haven't got any faith. But the problem is, you mentioned dawah. The problem is we want to do dawah amongst the converted. That's not dawah. I said, okay, yeah, we should do that a little bit, but... It's, there's enough non-Muslims to go around. You know, why, why aren't we? Why aren't we speaking to them? You know, why, why do we have to insist? Why do you have to fight over this particular guy who's praying five times a day? You join my group? No, you join my group. But he's praying five. Leave him alone. He's 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 a converted one. There are people in the pub opposite. They're the ones we want. They're the ones yes. we want to change. And alhamdulillah, a lot of people are changing, but not because of us, to be honest. They're because changing because of their, their research on Islam. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, another thing I want to, a theme that you mentioned that I want to go back to revisit is um, during the Rushdie affair, the unity of the Muslims, right? And something Mawlana Sahib, rahimahullah, focused on and, 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 you know, prioritized. So am I assuming that during the Rushdie affair, um, the Ubandis, Barelvis, Salafis and everything else in between was somewhat united in this front. And Shias. And Shias, yes. Yeah, yeah. Everyone was on the same stage. I remember the stage in Birmingham. They all held hands and they put their hands up. Yes, I remember that. I and picture, uh, yes. I, I looked at Hazrat Sahramatullah then. Yeah. And he actually looked at me back and yeah. he smiled at me. Okay. And I, I, he, he actually said, "Look, this is this is an Islamic issue." This is not a, a a faction issue or a group issue. This is an Islamic issue. And let's see who actually loves the Prophet Let's see who's willing to come out and defend him. You know, this is one of the things we said to people. This is not, you know, this luxury of debating Aqidah and debating other things. We can leave that alone. There's a bigger issue here. Let's not miss the elephant in the room, right? Because this is going to mess us up. And how can we stand before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and say, do you know what, the Prophet was insulted, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. His family were insulted, so his wives were insulted. The companions were insulted. Yeah, and one, by name, practically, and, and what was said, and we're, we're quiet. Mm -hmm. Where's your iman? Where's your kalimat tayyibah? Mm. How dare you think you can stand up in front of Allah on the jannamaz and, and put your head down on the floor when you haven't done the basics? I'm sorry. So we, we will speak out. We will do what we need to, legally speaking, to make people realize, I'm sorry, insults are not allowed. Behave in a civilized way or keep your mouth shut. And would it be fair to say that, you know, for our non-Muslim listeners and viewers, because we do have them, that Islam isn't against respectful critique? Absolutely. In fact, we have a rich tradition of having dialogue and debates in the centres of Abbasid Baghdad or Andalus in Spain and Ottoman Istanbul and you know centres of debate where non-Muslims, namely Christians and others, were able to critique respectfully aspects of Islam before they were refuted or set straight. But it is the insults, it is the the gratuitous language. Would you say that is essentially the we we are we are told we shouldn't insult another person's faith, no matter how much we disagree with it, mm -hmm. because the Prophet said, "Sallallahu yes. alaihi If you insult somebody's false beliefs, they will insult your beliefs. Mm -hmm. If you insult somebody's parents, they will insult your parents. There's a way of speaking to each other, and the Prophet had a beautiful way of speaking. Sallallahu When people insulted him, he never insulted them back. He, he, I, I've never seen a hadith where he's used a foul word or a rude word. He was always uh, had the highest of manners, no matter what was being said to him, what was done to him. He had the highest levels of forgiveness, no matter what the history was. And history bears testimony to that. So that's, that's the sunnah. So yeah, we're happy to have a dialogue. 
any time, be critical, ask questions. But there's no need to start insulting. And and on my Facebook, I I, I try and you know uh, copy that. People say some very bad things. I say, brother, the, is this the manners you, that Islam has taught you? Mm. Surely we can have a civilized discussion. If we can't, then you believe what you want to believe. But if you want a civilized discussion, here's the evidence. Accept it or don't. Alhamdulillah, you're answerable. I'm not answerable for you. You're answerable for yourself. Uh, and that's our that's how our approach should be. There is never a need to use a foul word. There's never. There's never a need to lose your temper uncontrollably and fly off into a rage. Uh, so even self-defense is a, there's a calm way of self of, of of defending and to to prevent trouble, not getting into trouble. So that should be our approach. When someone goes to insults, it means they haven't they haven't got the ability to have a proper dialogue. Bringing the podcast to a close and. You know, sticking on the theme of unity You mentioned Sunni a few times, right? <clears throat> and, you know, one of the one of the very popular things that are read on your social media Are these uh, hypothetical conversations that take place between an Akhi and a Sunni Yes? <clears throat> yes What is a Sunni? I mean, because you speak to those who are from the Diyaband, they're Sunnis, you speak to the Salafis, they're Sunnis, speak to Ikhwan al-Muslimin and Jamaati Islam, they're Sunnis, you'll speak to all the various Sufi tariqs that exist, they're Sunni, um, like Salafi jihadis, Sunnis, everything is Sunni from Bin Laden to Awlaki to Albani to Albuti to Sheikh Adim Rizvi to Sheikh Taqiyuddin Nabhani, to Hassan al-Banna, to the, the scholars of Dioband, everyone's a Sunni. What is a Sunni? Okay, look, the, the phrase Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, I'm not sure if you know when that first came into existence. I know it came much later. But it was to do with the, the time when the, when the Asha'ira and, the, and, and, and those kind of d- debates were happening with the Mu'tazila. Was it that period? No, it was before then. Before that? Uh, Abdullah ibn Abbas coined, coined the phrase radiallahu ta'ala and you find this in uh, Tafsir uh, ibn Kathir and I thought you meant the, category, the categorization Categorization, the definition might have come but he, he actually defined it as well Okay. and so there's a there's a verse of Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says um, on that day some faces will be shining and some faces will be dark and Abdullah ibn Abbas said, the faces that will be shining will be Ahli Sunnah wal Jama'ah. And the faces that will be dark will be Ahli Bidah wal Furqa. So he coined that phrase. Now, if he coined that phrase, it's from the Prophet Muhammad. Because the Prophet talked a lot about Jama'ah. Yes. For example, Yadullahi ma'al Jama'ah. The hand of Allah is with the Jama'ah. And Jama'ah is the a, is a, is a largest group. Is a majority, and he also said, uh, "The my ummah will not a, dis, will not agree on misguidance." So, in other words, a majority what they follow. Now, the the groups you're mentioning, they are they are sort of subsets of uh, maybe larger groups, but the majority are those, whatever they call themselves, they love the Prophet and they demonstrate that love with however they demonstrate, and they encourage that love and they encourage that demonstration of love. The people we have to be aware of are what the Prophet himself has told us, وسلم, and these are the Khawarij. And he actually said in, I think, Ibn Majah, Al Khawarij Kilabun Nar, they are dogs of the fire. Not, he's not saying out of insult, he's saying out of fact. They are lent to the fire as dogs, so much is their, is their uh, anti Islamic behavior. In fact, there's two chapters in Bukhari on, on this, on the Khawarij. And the reason he said that Ibn Umar, he said again in Sahih al-Bukhari, he said, because they use verses that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed against mushriks, he's used them, they use them against Muslims. And these are the people we're against, and that's where the Akhi and Sufi discussion has come from, because that mindset and that misguided knowledge is actually quite prevalent at the moment. And I've, and I've seen that. Verses where Allah says to the mushriks, don't worship a false god. Don't worship anyone other than Allah. They're saying, oh, 
you see you're, you're, you're asking people for help and worshiping mm-hmm. this and and that's where the confusion is i mean let's be frank about it we've we've, we've had this conversation uh, on the blood brothers podcast previously with um a scholar who's uh, from a similar persuasion to yours and others who are not and there is appears to be at least a historical unanimous agreement that what is widely regarded as the Najdi movement the one that rebelled against the Uthmani Khilafah and essentially made the blood and honor of Muslims halal because they were seen as apostates and and, and grave worshippers and so forth um, namely under the teachings of, of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab uh, but under the political leadership of Al Saud that, that that kind of unity that that early movement uh, was a movement which uh, I mean to put it lightly Had a lot of blood on their hands And it was justified through Such mindsets and approaches um, However That's not necessarily The case today with Muslims, brothers Who regard themselves to be Of the Salafi persuasion Or Hanbali Athari Or whatever it is that you want to say They are not of that mindset and they would still regard themselves as Sunni. And they definitely would not regard themselves as Khawarij, applying the verses of the disbelievers to the believers and vice versa. So I guess what I'm trying to get at, Sheikh, is let's put the Khawarij aside, right? And let's even put... Okay, okay. so some of the groups that I mentioned there, from do you believe them to be sects? Would it be appropriate to call them sects? So when the Prophet said there'd be 73 sects, from amongst the Muslims and one will make it to Jannah. Surely the, those different groups are not considered as, sex. As, as I said, uh, you might have subcategories, but I mean, um, I, I won't call anybody a non-Muslim. However, I'm focusing on the Khawarij, but I mean, for example, the Qadianis, could, you could argue they're a sect okay. uh, because they're not going, you know, with that belief system, which is against Quran. Ismailis? Uh, same thing. Okay. And for example, the, uh, the, the Salafi, the Khawarij. Yes. Now, it's not what they call themselves, right? It's what the majority call them, what the ulama Ikram call them. Mm. Because as a Prophet said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Ummah will not agree on misguidance. So if the majority say, no, you're misguided, then they're misguided. It's well, as simple as that. It doesn't matter what they say. But, well, but how do you then counter then? And how would you then counter them and say, look, hey man, okay, fine. There might have been elements of our historical roots, whether you want to take it back to MIAW or if you want to take it back to Ibn Taymiyyah, wherever it is you want to take it back to. The point is we still come from a from a normative position of the Athari school, the Athari creed and, and generally the Hanbali school. So what's the? how can you guys call us this? Um well, they, 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 they would say that because unfortunately they're still using and, and I've got evidence after evidence that on, and look at the websites as well and look at what's happening in Saudi as well what, mm. what you said is still going on it's actually accelerating now in, with, within Saudi Arabia but the fact is when you, when you misrepresent verses of Quran and, and call Muslims mushriks then you're of the Khawarij mentality and mindset and that's still going on I've got there's plenty of evidence around. Uh, are we saying every single verse against mushriks? Uh, are we saying that there's no verses against mushriks anymore? Is that what we're saying? <laughs> They're all directed towards Muslims. We're the ones. Didn't the Prophet come, Sallallahu to guide mushriks into Tawheed? Mm-hmm. Of course he did. And then didn't he say, oh, "I don't fear shirk for my people. I fear the dunya." Of course he said that. So the majority accept this. All the tafsir of the past, if you look at them. They clarify the Asbabun Nuzul, the reasons of revelation of, of, of the verses. And it's clear, if you want to misrepresent, I've just had a discussion now on Facebook. This guy is completely lying. He's completely mistranslating. He's completely misrepresenting. I've told him, what on earth are you doing? He, he, can't you read the Hadith properly? Can't you see this word? Look at it again. There's a word here. And you're saying it doesn't exist. It exists. And even you're saying it's a Sahih Hadith. You see, they're completely blind to the truth. And... That's the mentality we're against, and that's why I've introduced these simple things. Because when kids get get introduced to this, to say something is shirk makes them really worried. Oh my God, is it shirk? And I've, I've got to, I've got to make them realize, no, it's not. The shirk, definition of shirk does not extend like that. Because they don't like something, it's shirk. I'm sorry, that's completely wrong. You don't make Muslims non-Muslims. Because the Prophet said, Whoever says to his brother, Kafir, one of them definitely is. 
And we, we don't go around saying that. But that mentality, the Khwarij mentality, is prevalent. And that's why I've introduced the Sufi and uh, Sufi and uh, Akhi posts. Um, in 2015 or 16, I chaired a debate between uh, Sheikh Asar Rashid and uh, Ustad Abdul Rahman Hassan on uh, Istikhata, right? Um, and I recall very beginning, at the very beginning, uh, Sheikh Asrar said that, look, if you were to just say that, you know, supplicating to those whom you regard to be deceased or who are in the, who are buried and, and you know physically died and you said that this was something that was haram then this debate wouldn't be happening right but because you associate shirk to it this is why we are having this debate because there are certain things which are permissible for one school or maslakam which isn't for the other and there'll be an evidential basis for it but the issue here is the issue of takfir and tabdir is this similarly your mindset and your, your exactly right? Even Yasir Qadi, mm. he's changed his view on shirk, mm. and because he used to say this was shirk, actually goes no, actually it's haram. Because mm. saying something is shirk takes you outside Islam. Give you an example: someone does sajda to a tree. Mm. We don't point to him and say mushrik. We ask why are we doing sajda? Oh, I'm doing it out of respect. Okay, you're committing haram. Mm. Another person does sajda. Why are you doing sajda? I'm doing it out of worship. You're committing shirk. Okay. It's the same action. But the intention is different. The first hadith in Bukhari Sharif, that determines how you're judged by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You're judged by your intention. So the same action can be shirk, haram, fard, wajib, sunnah, whatever, sajda. It's your intention of doing that. So yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And the Prophet warned us, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he actually warned us, someone came to him, a kharji, he said, this is a, uh, from the khawarij. Mm. And this person was so rude, he said, ya Muhammad, he didn't even say, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, be, just. Be, adil. Be, adil. be just. And there's a verse of Quran confirming this. Mm-hmm. And Hazrat Umar took, taking out his sword. He was ready to chop him. Yeah. And the Prophet stopped him. I think he actually physically had to stop him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the, and the Prophet answered, if I'm not just, who's going to be just? I've, I've come to teach you justice. I'm the Prophet. I, I come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this guy went off in a huff. That attitude you can see now. And he actually described him as well. <laughs> these descriptions you can see now. And these people, as Ibn Umar says, they are the worst of creation. These are his words in Sayyid al-Bukhari. So, I mean, I'm, you know, concluding discussion point, I guess, is we're not talking about well, um, let's 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 put aside those from any persuasion that make takfir blanket takfir on muslims let's wherever they come from whatever maslak or whatever creed or whatever background they come from let's put them aside let's talk about those who do have differences within the creedal schools whether it's the, the ash'aris or the maturidis or the 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 atharis and those who are from the four madhabs or ascribe to one of the four madhabs, but there are still differences in between them, right? There surely there has to be a scope for unity there. I completely agree with you. There's scope for unity amongst all groups, the the especially on issues that affect all of us. And so, surely, so, so can I ask you about some of these issues that you may feel are worthy of un- uniting upon? Can I present some to you? Yeah. Um, counterterrorism laws like prevent. There should be unity. Muslims are very quiet on these. Yeah, there should be unity. Prevent has completely failed and is the biggest spy network network in the history of the world, I think. Israel. There should be unity. The, 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 all these, all these I, I can see where this is going and I completely agree with you. All these issues, the Muslim uni- Ummah can unite. The problem we've got is that we haven't got much power to do very much. We've got a voice and that's it. We've got to vote, and that's it. We can do a bit of lobbying, and that's it. The real issue is, what are the Muslim countries doing? Because they have the authority and power. And they should be lobbied as well, because their voices should be heard. And they should become strong in saying, do you know what, we should point out what's right and what's wrong. There's very few good leaders in the world, unfortunately. But in, in a sense, we've got the leadership we deserve. Mm. Uh, someone, someone said to me, oh, we need this and we need that. We should. I said, yeah, brother, stop a second. If we were good Muslims, we'd have all that. So let me then ask you this question, because now we're delving into geopolitics and revival in the Muslim world. If the leaders are a reflection of the people, 
there's also good amongst us. There'll always be khair in the ummah, surely, Sheikh. Yeah, and there's people, we, like, there's people like you in the ummah, yeah. alhamdulillah. Uh, un- unfortunately, you need a certain number of people. So, uh, so a critical this, mass. Okay, so is this a, is this a case of qualitative or quantitative? What, what it's, it's the quality produces the quantity. Okay. So none of us are doing our job. We're we're failing. Now, uh, uh, what what I can say is, uh, when we're in that situation where we're surrounded by haram and surrounded by uh, uh, people who are corrupt and our governments, right? Then Allah says, "Go anfusakum wa alikum nara." Save yourselves and your families from the fire. There's one companion. I, I, I think the Prophet was explaining, Sallallahu this will happen after I've gone, the fitna that will happen where companion will fight against companion. One of the companions was listening, I can't remember his name. He said, What should I do? That's awful. What should I do? And the Prophet said, Sallallahu you go into your house and you close the door. That's exactly what he did. When fitna happens, right and wrong is, is confused. And we are living in probably the worst fitna in, in our lifetimes. The Rushdi triggered something, right? And it happened just before the Iraq issue, which is very interesting. Mm. Muslims are being challenged every single day, right? Now, if we keep quiet, we'll become overwhelmed and, and no one will have any respect for us and we'll just become trampled upon. If we speak out and do our dawah and you know, show our iman, saying this is a better way, what you're doing is completely wrong. You know, I, I, I met somebody. He had tried the drugs. He tried the nightclub. Tried everything. He goes, you know what? It's, there's nothing there. It's all show. It's all a mirage. He goes, I found Islam. My heart's happy. And everybody's after this. Everybody's after happiness inside. And that's what the soul's all about. And that's what I mean. People come into Islam not by watching somebody pray necessarily, but feeling a happiness in their heart and a calmness in their heart. Allah bi dhikrillah the hearts find satisfaction in the dhikr you won't find it in, in accumulating wealth you won't find it in listening to music you won't find it in um, you know, uh, doing exercises or martial arts or this you, you will find it doing the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala making a strong connection with him and that comes from the heart that's what the soul is all about Imam Shafi rahmatullah said you need both the sawwuf and sharia if you have sharia, but you don't follow the sawwuf, you corrupt yourself. If you follow the sawwuf, but don't follow sharia, you corrupt the deen. You have to have both. This is actually a famous statement. of this was very, a famous very famous statement, statement and we this, should yeah. promote it even more. It's a beautiful statement. These great scholars, they were heavyweights, right? If, if any of them were alive now, no one would dare to speak in front of them. We're sitting at their feet mm-hmm. saying, please teach us, please lead us, please guide us. They're absolute heavyweights. And if you made one mistake in the hadith with the isnad, one mistake, they would say, knowledge is gone. That's, that's the level. Of, and, and, and we're just pathetic compared to them. Would Alhamdulillah, be, we still have their teachings. Alhamdulillah. Would it be fair to then say that whatever criticisms that did come uh, towards uh, groups or tariqs or people of the Sawwuf was perhaps as a result in some practices that were not normative or orthodox uh, when, when it came to the Sawwuf? Yeah, you find that everywhere. You find it in all beliefs. You find the extremists and the mm. misguided. And, mm. and you, you're there to guide them. You find it in the Prophet's time, Sallallahu when people were still drinking. You know, um, That's not how you judge Islam. You judge Islam. How do we, how do we deal with these people? And we mm. deal with them justly and fairly and nicely. Someone said to me, what's the... What's the Islamic punishment for drinking alcohol? I say the Islamic punishment is we rehabilitate them with love. Hundred percent. That's the Islamic punishment. Or are you are you after you know beating everybody up? Yeah. We're here to change people, not to you know scare them away. Have you ever been in a position, or have you ever witnessed uh, your dear father-in-law, may Allah have mercy on him? I mean, um, give dawah to people of a similar persuasion about some practices. Absolutely. Um, uh, people used to, you see, uh, he, he has, he's got lots of followers in Holland. And in Holland, they, they didn't know much about Islam, a, num- a number of the, the families. Mm-hmm. And the women were uncovered. They, sometimes they had mini skirts and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And no Alim wanted to speak to them. They said, no, get out of the mosque until you can dress properly. He said, you know what, that's not the way. Ask them nicely, just dress a bit modestly, please. And then you can come and we can speak. And by the time he'd finished with them, they were wearing their hijab, they were wearing long abayas, 
they were reciting knots mm. and qasidas and stuff and they were doing azan and they were giving speeches you know that's that's the power of a proper gamil sheikh we say a proper dai a proper person of god mm. he changes the community we hear stories about this but when you see it in practice you know i ask people who who criticize others okay how many people have you changed i know changes in allah's hands i know that but how many people have changed by you know by what you said mm-hmm. and i bet the answer is zero or one or two <laughs> concluding question to you we have seen for islamic history for over a millennia that when islam reached hearts and lands in all four corners of the earth it was done through a civilizational process you know whether it was uh, muhammad bin qasim going to sindh whether sheikh shahjalal rahimahullah going to bangladesh or what's modern day bangladesh whether it's tariq bin ziyad towards maghreb and towards spain many 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 examples that we can give right some cases sultan fatih fulfilling the prophecy of taking constantinople there are many examples where the advancement of Islam, whether it's in the Balkans or the Caucasus or the Far East, whether it's through traders, whether it's through jihad fi sabilillah, whatever it was, whatever it was, it was done civilizationally. The fact that Muslim merchants and traders were respected in Sri Lanka and the Far East was because they represented a particular civilization. The fact that many lands in the Balkans and uh, in North Africa were opened up as a result of the fact that there was no fighting. They saw how the Muslims were living and were practicing their faith. And there was many times there wasn't any battles. There was in West Africa, again, Islamic civilization. And that, so I guess what I'm trying to say is we've just got too much history to see that when Islam <coughs> did go and spread and reach the hearts and minds of people in the corners of the earth, it happened from a civilizational point of view. So, and you said just not too long ago about our leaders and us being a reflection of our leaders so what, what is it is this chicken and egg what is it do we, do we fix ourselves up first or can we do both can we work micro macro local regional what is it because the, the, okay we i mean you can inshallah if, if allah permits for his blessings you can help Convert or revert 50 people in Nuneaton I can try the same 50 in Bedford or Luton The brothers here, they can try some in Hackney But in terms of a civilizational <coughs> Da'wah right, where, where literally regions want to Be ruled by Islam and Muslims And want to be part of the civilization And will happily give the jizya to be protected And these kind of things What do we do for that kind of civilization Or do you, or do you think we're a long way away from that? أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم إن الله لا يغير ما بقوم حتى يغير ما بأنفسهم Allah won't change the condition of the people until they change what's within themselves So yes is the answer to your question We have a lot of work to do We don't focus only, we do both Do both And when we do both, Allah will watch us And Allah will see They're trying I'm going to bless their work Nothing comes easy. This is not Jannah. Mm-hmm. People come to me with their problems. They have a list of problems. And most of them I say, this is welcome to life. Right? Uh, Islam shows you a way through the problems. Because ultimately, these, the, the way we deal with these problems is, is a blessing for us and makes us stronger. And that's what we have to do. We shouldn't be afraid to show and, and show our iman. So yes, we do both. We're not doing, we're, we're not doing any of them. <laughs> oh, you're saying the issue is you're saying the issue is that many of us are not doing any of them. Yes, that, that's the issue. Okay. I, I see a lot of people. You see a lot of people mm. as well. You know, there, there's a certain connection to Islam. I've got to be honest. It's so weak. It's so I'm sad. So are you saying we're not worthy of victory yet? Whatever that means. Maybe, maybe. Uh, I'll ultimately change ourselves and change. You know what? When was the last time you a person cried in their dua? I'm gonna, I want to do a speech on crying. Actually, mm. I'm, I'm thinking about this. Uh, uh, I ask everybody who's listening: When was the last time you cried in your dua? A, a, a person who really connected to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala will cry regularly. When was the last time you read the Hajjud? When was the last time you read Namaz without thinking I've got to go somewhere else? These are the basics I'm talking about. When was the last time you sat quietly and you know what? I'm going to send blessings on the Prophet. This is his time. When was the last time? 
we we our mindset is dunya orientated and islam just fits into one of the pieces there we make islam fit into our lives as a posture the other way around and that's a big change because there's the, because there, there is an element of spiritual readiness before Allah gives us that victory on earth Whatever that, however that manifests If you look at all the Prophets والسلام, And all the companions And how hard they had to work How much they had to sacrifice The word sacrifice, the word sabr These have no meanings anymore I'm sorry to say mm-hmm. um, Shame on us That's all I can say, shame on us May Allah forgive us and guide us mm-hmm. And give us strength and give us unshakable faith But I mean, I shame mean, on us any concluding comments or words of advice towards those who would have listened or watched this podcast and they're seeing the situation of the Muslims domestically abroad. We've got the Uyghurs in concentration camps. We've got the ongoing occupation and oppression of the Kashmiris and the Palestinians. We see Syria in rubble. We see uh, Iraq all over the place. We're seeing famine and destabilization across vast parts of Africa. Um we're seeing the situation of the Rohingya. Then here in the West, we're seeing uh, our children being brainwashed with un-Islamic ideas right at the heart of the curriculum. It's relentless. It's relentless. So one could argue, Sheikh, Jazakallah khair for the beautiful advice and writing us off. But please forgive us. The situation's hard out here. Give us some words of inspiration. Look, I'm not saying shame on us and, and go off and die somewhere. I'm, yeah. I'm saying shame on us. Let's sort it out. Right. The first thing is to recognize these are my weaknesses. Let's sort it out. Any project you do, you sort out the weaknesses, don't you? Before you, you, you can't, you can't launch a spaceship uh, to space if it's got weaknesses. You've got to get everything ready. So let's start working on ourselves and do what we can for our Muslim brothers and sisters around us and around the world. Every day we should do something. Every day we should think about, you know, I'm going to help somebody, whether it's a Muslim or non-Muslim. All your neighbours should know you're Muslims. All your neighbours should have a respect for you and respect for Islam. If they're not, you're not doing your job, right? We make sure our neighbours get a little bit of food, our neighbours get a little bit of hello. We make sure we, we offer help and stuff. That's the Muslim thing to do. We make sure we do a bit of charity work. Mosques, what are you doing? You know, you're not doing enough. Thank you for all the work you're doing, but... You know, uh, getting people ready for prayer and stuff and organising the Jummah. What community work are you actually doing? Where's, where's the homeless shelters? Mm-hmm. Where, where are the community supports? Where's the charity work? You know, come on, let's get on with it. And, and if we're not going to get on with it, then shame on us. Sheikh Shazakallah Khairi, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, <laughs> if I said anything to hurt or offend you, please forgive me. It was an absolute pleasure having you on. And, and I pray that Allah blesses you with a long life and a virtuous Amen. one in this Amen. life and Jannah to Fardos in the hereafter. And that we get to enjoy and benefit from your counsel and your advice in terms of the work of Five Pillars and, and all else that we're involved Thank in. Thank you very much. It's been an honour and privilege. I, I missed you so much for so long. I, know, I get to see you. It's very clinical. I wanted to take you out for a meal and everything. But Likewise. maybe... Another time because of being very antisocial today for some reason. No, no, very no, busy, aren't you? No, yes, it's, it's, it's been a back to back to back to back day. I love bless you for your work. I mean, you're sure. Thanks, Sheikh. Brothers and sisters and friends, I hope you thoroughly enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. Um, please remember to subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. And of course, if you're an avid podcast listener, you can find us on Spotify, Google, and Apple, and all the other major platforms. And until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Blood Brothers Podcast, a five pillars production.